Hello everyone, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I just wanted to take a minute to introduce this next episode. It is a very special episode that I did with Christine with the Antidotes podcast, and we did an entire episode about workplace violence and where we told different stories um, of things that happened to people. Uh, Christine addresses some things that happened to her and I talk about some some things that happened to me and then I also addressed a uh, very serious story about Katie Blanchard, a first lieutenant army nurse who went through a horrific experience and so I I tell that story and I want you all to hear that story. I know you're going to love her and love her resilience and her courage. And so be sure and go on to Facebook um, and Instagram. We're going to have some posts on there with some pic- some pictures. You can go to Antidotes Podcast um, or Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, whichever one on Facebook, and just let us know what you think about it. So enjoy the show. Welcome to another week of Antidotes. Thank you, everyone that's been listening. I'm really just amazed by how many listeners we've been getting week after week. It's only been a month and it's been kind of taking off. And I'm so grateful for everyone that's been tuning in and everyone that's been leaving reviews. It's really been helping us. It's been wonderful. We've been actually making appearances on like the medical charts. Very, very low appearances, but like actually showing up in Australia and the US. So I'm just flabbergasted that that's a thing. So I'm so grateful. And if other people would be so kind to leave reviews too, or help us get a little bit higher on the charts and more people will hear our stories. But I am so glad to have you all here again for another week. And this week is going to be special because we have Tina from Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast joining us. So welcome, Tina. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm excited. So Tina is a nurse and you are half of the Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I feel sometimes I feel like I'm 100% of it because I'm I'm usually I kind of wear all the hats. I do all of the the stuff for it. But yeah, pretty much half of it. (laughs) Your co-host is getting her master's. Is that correct? Yes, she graduates in December. And so between now and then, she's just covered up with school and work. So she doesn't really have time to do the podcast right now. So I just kind of go out there and hold up a sign and say, will somebody please podcast with me (laughs) for now? (laughs) Podcast beggars. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Please host a podcast with me. Is she getting her master's as an NP, administration? What is she getting in? It's administration. Yeah. she. I can't imagine doing anything while I was getting my master's. Uh, Like podcasting is a lot of work. I did not recognize this. Mm -hmm. But also doing a podcast while getting your master's and working, uh, there's no wonder. (laughs) I know. Working full time and in school full time. I can't imagine it either. When we started at the beginning of the summer, I was like, are you sure you're going to be able to do this? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it shouldn't be a problem. And we were able to do that for a little bit over the summer. And then it, whenever she had a break, we, we were able to record a few episodes. But I mean, once that kicks in, it's clinical every day or work and homework. And, you know, she's got to have time for her family. I mean, for some reason, she insists on seeing her family. I just think that's terrible. But, you know, what can I do? I mean, some people are so rude. <laughs> so selfish. <laughs> selfish. Well, this worked out for me, actually, because I got to go on your podcast, yes. which will be in the future, even though it was recorded in the past. <laughs> no, it's so weird. The whole podcasting thing is like time travel almost. <laughs> <laughs> we recorded last night and we were going to record this podcast last night, too, but we had a couple of technical difficulties mm-hmm. and then we ended up just being very chatty and it lasted forever, which was a great thing. We always want more content. So I'm really excited to see how it turns out. So I, for anyone that is interested, will be on Tina's Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast. 
And the premise of your podcast is you do one half of the episode talking about a true crime medical related story. And then you do an awesome thing, which I really love. I love the feel good stories. You talk about someone that's doing a really good thing in medicine or has done something really good. And it's always good to end on a positive note. And I talk about Brigadier General Anna May Hayes, who was the first female general in the U.S. military who was a nurse. Yeah. And I love that story. I love stories like that, especially about women doing amazing things and changing the world and doing it in such a humble way. And it was a great story. I love true crime, but I also love the medical field and love to encourage and um, uplift people and try to try to educate. And it's, it's just a passion of mine. So I sort of trying to incorporate all of those things into the podcast. So yeah, it's been a great podcast to listen to, to add on to all the other ones that I've just been binging and can't get enough of. So if anyone likes my podcast and likes other podcasts, I would definitely recommend another medical podcast. I don't think there's enough medical story podcasts. There's out not. There. No, somebody please do more. I want more. Yeah. Get creative <laughs> and do, do more podcasts because it's a lot of work and we need some help. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about healthcare violence and patients attacking healthcare workers. Mm. So at the start of this episode, I want to just put out a little disclaimer. Of course, anyone that's been listening to my podcast know that I get into the gory details of things, I swear, which I did not realize that you did not swear on your podcast <laughs> last night. <laughs> and I had a little bit of a faux pas. Uh, <laughs> I was not terrible. I had a pretty clean mouth, it, which is so funny because at work, I work in a very nice, well-respected primary care office, and I do not swear at all, and I have to be very well-behaved. <laughs> My dirty former military EMS mouth is so, so clean and proper, <laughs> so I let it out on the podcast, and I slipped up, so there will be bleeping of me, but <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, you know, it, it happens. Not a problem. <laughs> But today we are going to be talking about violence and especially with everything that's been going on in the news this past few weeks. For anyone that's listening to this later, the Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings with Dr. Ford and sexual assault were, were just going on. It's been a very touchy time, to say the least, in American politics and the country and sexual assault. We are going to be talking about assault on healthcare providers I am going to tell a story where someone threatened sexual assault. I'm not going to go into details of sexual assault. No sexual assault actually was committed, but obviously that can be very triggering for survivors and I want to be respectful of them. So I'll give you a little bit of a heads up before I tell that story. If someone wants to fast forward through that, I absolutely respect that and want you to be aware. We don't want to make problems worse. We just want to create awareness for our specific issues. So Tina, why don't we get started with your story, which actually kind of ties into what I was talking about a little bit on your podcast was military nurses. Mm. Yes, this story, I've been waiting to do the story for a while. I, I wanted to do it a few months ago. And this person is sort of connected through a friend of a friend. I don't know her directly, but and just through a friend of a friend, someone said, hey, this would be an interesting story for you to do. And um, to me, it's a little awkward doing a story about someone that's connected like that, because it's just I'm more aware that that person may be listening. And so I, I just want to be respectful. And of course, and I want to do the story justice and indirectly just said, Hey, would do you think she would mind me doing the story? And uh, my friends came back and said, No, they said they want you to do it because they want their message, her message to be out there and her story to be spread so that people understand the type of thing that can that can go on. So this is the story of Katie Ann Blanchard. Lieutenant Blanchard is that Lieutenant. Yes, is a lieutenant in the military. I don't know if she is actively right now still in the military. I don't know how that works because what happened to her is she was in a like a supervisor position. I'm not exactly what sure what her position was where she worked. She's a nurse, but the role that she was in was sort of a supervisory position. There was another person who and I, I was looking at all these different stories, uh, accounts of the story, and I, I know that I read somewhere that this man is a nurse, but I couldn't find that when I went to look. It was all healthcare related, so he's a healthcare worker, but I just couldn't find his actual title. So it's a little bit vague as to what the setting was, but I know it's uh, there was a nurse practitioner down the hall and that sort of thing. So it, it was sort of a medical office, I think, setting, and she was a supervisor. 
This person did not. Um, his name is Clifford Curry. He did not like having a female in a position of authority over him. And he let that be known to her several times. I think at first she said that she didn't really know why he had a problem with her. He just to interject, mm -hmm. sometimes in military facilities, you'll have civilian employees, government GS employees working oh, okay. supplement the active duty military personnel. Okay. If there's not enough staff. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, there'll be like government contractors and especially like if they're skilled employees like nurses or something that the military does not have enough slots for in their own branch or they don't have enough, you know, people in the army or the other people are deployed, they will have civilians fill in. Okay. And this was at Leavenworth. Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. That's right. So a apparently a, another nurse practitioner down the hall heard screaming from an office and she went in to check to see what was going on and she saw Lieutenant Blanchard on fire. So what had happened is Clifford Curry went into the office and doused her with gasoline and set her on fire and then started stabbing her. Um, and then just this huge fight wrestling match basically ensued between the nurse practitioner and some other coworkers who came to her aid. And they said that it all happened relatively quickly but it was just chaotic and they were trying to give her aid while they were trying to hold him down. And they eventually, I think they got him into like a, a room off away from her, but he continued, like he went into another room, got a pair of scissors and started using that. He had a straight edge razor in one hand and a pair of scissors in the other um, and was using that to stab her at the same time he was trying to set her on fire. He was so angry with her. And the thing that really is so, I mean, this is not even a patient. This is a coworker that did this to her, but he threatened her before this happened. And she never really understood what the problem was. He never really said why he had such a problem. I mean, he was not the best employee and she was his supervisor. So I'm assuming she, there were times when she would have to kind of set him straight on some things or do some corrective type action toward him. And he could not stand that. And he, at one point she said, what, what is your problem? And he said, you, you are my problem. And she said at that point, she said he also made some very specific threats to her and she went to her upper, the people above her. her yes. And she said, he is going to hurt me. And the whole time that he was attacking her when he threw the gasoline on her and, and lit her on fire and was stabbing her, she was screaming, I told you he was going to do this. I told you he was going to do this. She knew, she knew he was going to do it. it. She wasn't at all surprised when he, when he actually came and attacked her. So now she has burns like on her face all over much of her body. She went through extensive therapy and medical treatment to just recover. She had, her face is scarred. She still looks beautiful. I think she has beautiful eyes and she's just, she's gorgeous just for who she is. But she says people say that to her. So I don't want to minimize what was done to her and, and the scars that she has by trying to pretend like she doesn't have scars and say, you know, because it matters, it matters to her. So I don't, I don't want to minimize it at the same time. You know, I'm sure people want to make her feel better about that and make her realize, you know, it's not as bad as I was expecting. You know, they try to soften it up. But she says, you know, people say but that she, sees, she it. sees it and she knows that it's there and yeah. it's not who she was before. He's completely altered her life forever. She yeah. will be in pain. Every day she looks in the mirror. She sees see it. it. She sees those scars. And it doesn't matter that she's still beautiful and that nobody around her cares that that, that happened as far as the, the scars go. What matters is that she will forever be altered. She's emotionally scarred. She's physically scarred. And she's going to be in pain for the rest of her life because she has to do these treatments where she puts lotion all over her body just to make her, she said her skin is so sensitive. She can't go outside um, without first putting you know, this lotion all over her body to help her to be able to withstand you know the sunlight and even just wearing clothes yeah and someone changed your body without your yes. permission even if someone cut your hair or dyed mm -hmm. your hair and it still looked great but they did it without your permission that's a violation of your body without and you have to look at it i mean if you look you looked wonderful you did not approve that and much less being lit on fire and the associated pain and being stabbed you know i understand the need for people to compliment mm -hmm. her and say, oh, you still look beautiful, you you look fine, and 
trying to be reassuring in that. And I think that's very well intentioned, mm-hmm. but I can absolutely understand her reaction to that being no, but I'm this still not okay. And still being upset by the, those comments. Yeah. And, and she, my heart just goes out. She to doesn't her. want it to be minimized. And now she is suing. She's, she has filed a claim against the army combined arms center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where she was working at the time of the assault. And so apparently there is a doctrine that actually prevents service members and their families from suing the Defense Department. Yeah, the Ferris doctrine. But she's she's doing it anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I think she's suing them on a failure of command. And I don't know the specifics, but I think she's, there's like a workaround of like a command failure resulting in this as opposed to like, I was injured as a result of combat or something because that's what the Ferris Doctrine is kind of, and I might be saying this wrong, Ferris, it's F-E-R-E-S. Basically, like if you're injured in a war zone, you're not supposed to sue the Department of Defense for damages because you signed up in the military and, you know, you should have known you may get hurt. But obviously, this is an egregious error on the on behalf of her command. Yeah, because she said for months before the attack, She warned her supervisors and security personnel at the hospital that she believed that he was going to kill her. So this was something that just happened over that whole year. And she tried, it says that she tried to implement an administrative plan to get his work progress on track. So I could just imagine, you know, she has to bring him into her office and say, look, here's some problems that we're having with your work right now. And I need you to do this, this and this to try to get back on track, you know, like an action plan. And he did not. Counseling state. Yeah. He did not appreciate a female, I think, being in a position to be able to do that. And he just could not tolerate it. And it wasn't good enough to just quit his job and go work for someone else who's not a female. He had to eliminate her. The amount of rage, Mm -hmm. irrational rage. It's going to be interesting to see where that lawsuit goes, because I hope it goes somewhere. I hope someone is held responsible for not taking action when she did all the right things and she reported it. Because so often in healthcare, we don't report these assaults or the threats, but she did. She did do those things and she still got hurt and it's, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And now she still has to undergo surgery every few months for her face. She has to have, she has to work with a speech pathologist because it makes uh, the burns that she suffered make it difficult to um, speak out of both sides of her mouth. She has to do physical therapy, occupational therapy. Just the the lotion that she has to put on her, her skin alone, she said, costs $20 for a tub of it. And she uses a tub, I think she said, every couple of days. So, And they don't provide that. I, I don't think her insurance covers it. She, I think at first, somehow her, her the insurance that she was under has changed, maybe she, because she left that facility. I'm not sure. But now the, th- the things that that they're paying for is different. And it's just, I think it's absurd that she would ever have to worry about anything financial. So I think she's insured under TRICARE, which is the military's insurance. Because the Army Times actually just this past week released an article about her. And I think I sent it to Mm -hmm. you. And I was kind of perusing the article that she's insured under TRICARE and they'll cover the treatments. But she constantly has to, because I, I think she's still on active duty because she hasn't been released. So she, I think she's on like a medical hold. Oh, okay. And, I'm, and I may be very wrong about some of these things. But like sometimes the medications aren't stocked because they're specialty medications. And she has to fight to get orders to go to specialty appointments when the specialists aren't at the base that she's at currently. And people are just like, nope, well, we can't do that. Here's something else. And like she keeps going through it just because of the size of it. And she's still just like struggling with getting the treatments that she needs. And you would think that the military would be very good at dealing with burns, seeing how there's a lot of burns. You would think so. She says that after she has a facial surgery, so she's, you know, these multiple surgeries, she has to sleep with her head elevated. And so she needs a special bed, an orthopedic bed that lifts and reclines. And TRICARE said that they consider that for comfort, that that's not a necessity, so they don't cover it. Uh, you know, just things like that. I just feel like, and, and I know that it's a business and, you know, they can't cover everything. But at, some, at the same time, this woman was attacked in her place of employment after she had 
complained multiple times and why in the world they would not just be like, whatever you need, it's done. I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. Well, TRICARE is a government insurance too. And she was a military, she is a military officer. She signed up to serve this country and to treat our service members right. and to care for them. And we can't care for her. Of course, any healthcare worker that is injured is horrific. But we are always talking about, oh, veterans are not getting the treatment that they deserve. I mean, she's a veteran. She's a female veteran. Female veterans are often overlooked, much less a female veteran nurse that's injured on the job. This is there should be just as much outrage that she's not getting the care that she needs as if any any other veteran that is not getting the care that they deserve. Yeah. Well, she's with this lawsuit, she's hoping to cover all of those expenses that Tricare refuses to pay for, and also. She's having to pay for a lot of childcare while she's having these medical procedures done because her husband is an active duty officer as well, and he gets deployed. So while he's away and she's trying to take care of her children and get have all this medical treatment, she's got all of the costs that are associated with that. It's just a, a difficult situation for her, and I really, I'm so proud of her for being as strong as she's been through it. She just, she's to me, she's um, an example of. Just, a really strong woman who's able to take something like that. Somebody tried to to blot her out, and she just she refused. She just ref- she just said no, not today. You're not gonna you're not gonna wipe me out. And now he's serving twenty years in prison. Twenty years. It's not really long enough, but yeah, I feel like attempted murder should be longer. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> how do you put time on that? I don't know how you figure out that punishment. I think that he should just be locked away forever. Uh, someone who's that dangerous that he just decides, you know, the law doesn't apply to him. He's just going to do whatever he wants to. But I mean, basically, she didn't do anything wrong. He just decided that the way the circumstances were just did not suit him. Yeah, she just existed. Yeah. Well, it's just horrific. But I'm I'm so glad she survived. Yes. She's also in the process of getting her PhD. I think her whole life is going to be about workplace violence and trying to combat workplace violence and educate and cha- make changes to the system. So she is the epitome of someone who someone else tried to make her a victim. And instead, she takes that and turns it back on them and says, nope, I'm going to take this opportunity to make it into something good and make change, you know, try to change the world. And I, that's what she's that's what she's doing. I'm really hopeful about where she goes from here. And I've would love to see her would love to see her succeed even further and i think that would be a really interesting talk to have her speak on this personally but i i can imagine right now that it's just so far from her mind i know well i would love to go hear her yeah years down the road i think that would be a wonderful thing and i can't wait to see what she does with the advocacy and changing if she decides that she wants to do that well i know that just from her story just from listening reading her story watching interviews it just sort of sparked some incidents that have happened to me mm-hmm. at different times in different places that I've worked that made me think, you know, I've never had anything like that happen to me. But I've had some things happen where I was afraid. And I even had at this one place that I worked, I had an incident happen where a patient threatened to, well, indirectly, he basically said, what would you do if someone followed you home and slit your throat? So, and that same patient, I found him sitting in his bed, peeling an apple with a knife, a a pretty sharp knife, which they shouldn't have any knife at all. And I had to call security on the patient and it was just, you know. Was this an inpatient unit? Yes. What ended up happening is I felt, obviously I felt threatened. I felt like, you know, this, this patient was in no condition to be able to follow me home and slit my throat, but he also had family members who, I don't know, they, there was some family members that said some, some threatening remarks, not about, I don't think about me in particular, but about some nurses. These people just did not like healthcare workers at all. Because I think that people who go to the hospital sometimes who don't get everything the way they want it, you know, maybe they don't want, they want medicine that that they're not being given, or they don't like the diet that the, the doctor orders for them. So say for instance, yep. there's a doc, there's a patient who the provider said, 
you are an aspiration risk. So if you're, when you drink water, it goes into your lungs and you're, that's what's causing your pneumonia. So we have to thicken your water. So from now on, you have to have thickened liquids. You're not allowed. So then the staff, the nurses, the CNAs have to bring that patient thickened liquids to drink. And some of these people get really mad about it because have you ever drunk thickened liquids? Because I have. It's it's, disgusting. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> it's not thirst quenching at all. Yeah. And so some people. It doesn't make me want to stab someone. Right. But it's not delicious. But if you are of the character that yes. you take things out on the messenger of the person who's, you know, and you, that person is there. So that's just as good as anybody to be mad at. Those are the people that are that I'm afraid of because yeah. they don't, th- when they see me, they don't see an individual. They see the system, the system that is keeping them from being able to drink their water. You know, per- people do have the right, of course, to refuse health care. They have the right to be non-compliant. But if you're in the hospital at the same time, you can't, I can't bring you a glass of thin liquid because then I am complicit in your non-compliance. And so I can't be a party to that. So I'm not going to bring you thin liquids. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's just a, there's this back and forth fight when that patient says, well, I don't care if I I don't care what you say that I'm aspirating or whatever. I want the thin liquids, bring me a Coke or bring me this or that. And I'm just going, I'm sorry, but I can't. So then there's this huge fight that ensues. You're violating an order. Mm Mm-hmm. It gets scary to me because people like that, if they get angry enough, you know, they're in a volatile situation anyway, they're not having a very good day if they're in a hospital anyhow. And if they see you as the enemy, once that happens, and I, I tend to be when I'm working, the, the patient is the whole world for me. I don't, I don't ever, I'm, my whole life is about just trying to make them comfortable and help them. And I love nursing. So it's, that's the kind of nurse that I like to be, but there will always, it doesn't matter how nice you are, how sweet you are, how helpful and loving and nurturing and accommodating you, you are. If you ever have to be the person that has to say no, they can turn on you in a second. And all of a sudden you are the enemy and they don't care. They don't care what all you've done for them. Sometimes you need to establish boundaries and you need a little bit of tough love in healthcare Mm -hmm. because people became sick because of lifestyle choices or just kind of a lack of information about health in general. And so when you're providing education, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't have all those Cokes or (laughs) that's not helpful for your diabetes Mm -hmm. or like you said, you need to thicken liquids or no, an antibiotic is not appropriate for this. Right. People think they know better and it's really you just trying to educate them what the appropriate treatment would be. And some people don't want to hear that because they've already come in thinking, this is what I need. I don't want this stupid nurse, doctor, paramedic, anyone telling me no, mm-hmm. just give it to me and let me get on with my day. And and sometimes these are not necessarily normally bad people. They're sick, they're hurting, they're tired, their blood sugars are low. But it's not always people that are intoxicated. Yeah. It's not always people that are mentally ill. It is sometimes people are just very demanding. And I have encountered a lot of violence in my career, a lot of it, um, not so much now in my current position working in primary care. I work with a very different population, but when I worked in EMS, violence was a daily event. There was a NBC News article that just came out this past week talking about violence with emergency room docs, and it said that a significant portion of them, I forget the numbers, said that they had been assaulted within the last year, physically assaulted. Good. And yeah. And that's the doctors. Mm -hmm. And that is astounding. And that is the physicians. Those are the people that are in the positions of power that patients say, oh, I'm going to attack them. And usually the patients are attacking the people that they see are the weakest, that they can kind of take the most advantage of. When I was working in EMS, it was me that was attacked, not the six foot tall firefighters in turnout gear or the cops with guns. They go, oh, it's the five, four blonde girl who looks like she's 15 because I was young. Little do they know. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, I'm going to go for this one. And I mean, yeah, usually they 
found themselves, you know, in some screens. <laughs> they regret it. <laughs> they regret it. But if we walk into an emergency room, me as the nurse practitioner in a white coat and you as the nurse, they're probably going to go for you before me because, oh, I'm I'm the one in the white coat prescribing medication. Mm-hmm. They would not want to piss me off first because I have more power. They're going to go for the people that have the least amount of power in their eyes. So that study was on emergency physicians. What is the data on emergency nurses? And they, they touched on it briefly in this article that nurses very frequently are verbally assaulted and very frequently physically assaulted. Yeah. One thing that is underreported is the assault on EMS. And EMS providers, I said it for, get attacked regularly. And when I say regularly, I mean the threat of violence is daily. One, you don't know what you're going into for calls. I mean, I have been in a hostage standoff where I ran in with the SWAT team. Obviously, you know that that could be dangerous. <laughs> but you walk into a call and you never know. There's very often been guns pulled. I've been almost stabbed multiple times. And when you wake up someone from an opioid overdose, they very frequently are violent. The Narcan hits them and they're disoriented. They don't know where they are. And I have been punched. I have been bit. I have been kicked. I have been spat on. Someone threw walnuts at me. <laughs> someone, I mean, I have an entire episode on a podcast where someone threw a snake at me. That's assault. <laughs> you know, I've had tables thrown at me. Like everything. Someone threw a fake eye at me once. Oh. And I had to say, sir, please, please put your eye in and have a seat on the stretcher. <laughs> this happened all the time. And we didn't report it because... We said, oh, this is just part of the job, but that's not okay. Mm. And the media is not reporting this either because we're not reporting this. We're not really speaking out about it. And in EMS, we don't have, we don't necessarily have the unions and we, that nurses have. We don't have the public national bodies. Collective voice, yeah. Yeah, we don't have the collective national voice that nurses have, that physicians organizations have, like the American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association. Mm -hmm. EMS providers don't have that as much. And it's really unfortunate that these providers are getting harmed at higher rates. And a study done by the National Institute of Health in 2016 showed that paramedics are more likely to be attacked than even firefighters. And oftentimes those jobs overlap. There's firefighter paramedics. But if you're working in the paramedic role, you are more likely to get attacked than a firefighter, probably because you're spending more time with the patients. And often we would be in the back alone with people going 40, 50, 60 miles an hour down the road, and then someone gets violent. It's one thing to have a violent patient in a hospital. That's terrifying enough. But you can hit a security button, you can scream, there's yeah. the, the ground isn't moving, and someone can come running. There's, there's security guards there. If you're in the back of an ambulance on the side of the highway, you know, driving down a highway, no one's there except for your partner. And then you have to have someone pull over, hope you don't get pushed out of the, the doors, and fight back if they want to. One patient that sticks out in my mind about this, and this is the story where someone threatened um, sexual assault for anyone that wants to skip. This patient had been in a group home. So a little bit of red flags when we go into a group home anyways, as far as safety. The cops had come with us and he had threatened to kill himself, had smashed a mirror and there's broken glass everywhere. The cops patted him down before he got in the ambulance. It was me and a male partner. This kid was, you know, early 20s maybe. I was early 20s. He was not huge, but he seemed pretty calm. He just seemed kind of depressed and like suicidal. And he had cut his arms up a little bit, but it was very, it was rather superficial. It wasn't anything significant. It was kind of a run-of-the-mill mental health call. We were going to take him to the ER. He needed some help. And, you know, you fell for him. Of course, like you would with anyone. And they searched him for weapons. And we get him in the back of the truck. And I had just been talking to him. And we are going down the road and then all of a sudden he flips and he starts screaming at me and he goes let me out let me out right now and he had been put on a section 12 which in massachusetts is a mandatory commitment to the hospital because he had threatened to kill himself and he had had weapons and he had an attempt so 
that's the mandatory commitment that's a legal order that we have to comply with. If he did not have that, I could have just said, okay, well, I have to let you out because I don't, I'm not kidnapping you. But we had that, that pink paper. So we had to take him. We couldn't just release him. So after he said, let me out. I don't want to go. I said, no, you know, we have this order. And usually what I would say in these situations is like, look, the cops signed it. I understand you don't want to go. But when we get there, we're going to talk to the doctors and the nurses and they can help straighten these things out for you. I just have to take you there. He was not restrained. And I try and be really comforting because I know this is really scary for people. And whatever they're going through is was terrifying. And he just kept saying, no, let me out. And then, of course, he's swearing, you know, let me out, bitch. And I, of course, diffusing the situation is always <laughs> the first step and the best thing to do. That was not working. And all of a sudden, he had not said too much other than let me out, let me out. He pulls a shard of glass like out from the waistband of his pants and then like another small shard of glass out from his mouth. And he goes, let me out or I'm going to fucking rape you. Oh, gosh. And he pulled. So an ambulance stretcher has two two straps that come down over the shoulders and it connects across the waist. And then there's one. There's two on the legs as well. So five point seatbelt. As he's saying, I'm going to rape you. He pull he disconnects the the seatbelts on his chest and he starts to get up off the stretcher. We're going 40, 50 miles an hour down the road. And I had been sitting next to him on the bench, and there's a there's a long bar that goes along the top of the ambulance. And I just stand up, grab the bar, and with all my might, I just kick him in the chest. <laughs> because oh I can't let him stand up because then he's in charge and mm-hmm. He's got glass shards that he's going to stab me with. And I was just like, no, you're not. Sit down right now. Ugh. Like no longer nice, concerning voice. And and I you look at my partner through the little window and I was like, pull over immediately. Yeah. My partner was like, okay. And this was just pure instinct. It happened in less than a second because I had I'd been in fistfights with patients before and I had these reflexes to just fight real fast. And this guy just got knocked back onto the stretcher. And he was like, what the hell? And he starts yelling at me and he starts waving the hands. But the impact of me kicking him in the chest was enough for him to drop the glass. And then I reached down and I grabbed his hands and was able to bend his hand down into his wrist and twist his arm behind his back and get him face down, get him prone on the the stretcher and put all of my body weight on him until my partner was able to come around and help me restrain him. And it happened really, really fast, but I had been trained in self-defense and just had been doing this for years and had to fight patients before. But if I didn't know that, if I had been a new EMT, if I had been timid, I don't know what I would, I would have been stabbed. Wow. I can't even, I don't even want to think about it. That's just horrifying. That's not even, that's just one story. I could go on and on. I could tell you about when I worked in addiction medicine as a nurse practitioner and patients would see me at the gym and they were on parole for rape and violent crime. And then they would just make little threats to me. What? (laughs) And I left the state. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not all of my addiction patients were, were terrible. Just very few of them would be like, I'd be afraid if I discharged a patient from the program, they would find me where I lived and I lived alone. Mm. I have a wonderful black lab who is not a good guard dog, <laughs> but He's I lived lucky to death. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, like, anyways, back to that patient in the ambulance, it was kind of amusing as much as a assault can be amusing that we got him restrained and we wheel him into the ER. And of course, he starts screaming. He had this white t-shirt on, this white undershirt. And there's this big black boot print right on the middle <laughs> of his t-shirt. And he's going, she assaulted me. She beat me up. She kicked me. This is abuse. He's just screaming for the entire ER that I beat the crap out of him. I mean, I did. Sure. I definitely did. <laughs> but you threatened to stab me and rape me. So go fuck that yourself. That is exactly Because right. you deserved it. It was all self-defense. <laughs> and the doc, uh, the docs there and the nurses, they had known me for years. And I told them the story and there was a report and everything. And we had called in on the radio that we needed security. Security met us at the door. But there he was with his 
boot print and me going, I don't know what happened. <laughs> that was for me. Oh, I found him like that. <laughs> I mean, I didn't end up telling him the story, but yeah, EMS, it's very, very dangerous. And I say it again and again, private EMS does not get paid enough. They don't have enough benefits to cover when they do get injured. And there needs to be more awareness for it. Mm-hmm. This just has to stop. I don't know what the solution is. But thankfully, this stuff is is more in the news. And there needs to be better laws to protect healthcare providers when they are attacked. It needs to be it needs to be a felony. There needs to be an understanding. The public needs to know and understand that it is absolute. There is no tolerance, zero tolerance for attacking any kind of first responder, healthcare provider, anybody in that position that obviously nobody should be allowed to be attacked any, at any time. But those people are putting themselves out there to try to help people. You shouldn't have to worry about uh, risking your life. I mean, there should be very, very tough, very strict laws. There is zero tolerance for this. Yeah, I think in New York, they have passed laws in the last few years that there's now like a seven-year minimum sentence for attacking EMS professionals and they put the signs like on FDNY ambulances now Hmm. in Massachusetts. I I don't know what the laws are. There was a very interesting case, not interesting, there was a very horrible case in June of 2017 where a nurse was attacked and she was stabbed 11 times in triage. She had been a nurse for 35 years, Elise Wilson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that story. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it was horrible. And she's not a new grad. She she knows. Mm-hmm. She's she's experienced. She was like watching out and she still got stabbed 11 times. And this was in triage where people weren't necessarily around. But because of what happened to her, they passed Elise's law in Massachusetts, which required hospitals and healthcare facilities to allow for PTO if a worker is fighting a legal case up to seven days Hmm. against someone that attacked them. And that healthcare facilities had to develop and implement safety plans. There was required annual reporting and that it allowed for healthcare providers to use the hospital facility address instead of their home addresses in report. So it's a start. Oh, I would hope so. No, I mean... but. It still doesn't protect EMS providers. No, it doesn't. It's still just healthcare facilities. And the only way I think we can change this is that we just keep talking about it. We have to keep talking keep about it. it. That's what we that's why we do what we do, right, Christine? That's why we're doing this to try to get <laughs> try to help educate the public. Because, you know, ultimately, who is it benefiting? It's benefiting the public. It's benefiting everyone because what would we do if we didn't have those first responders? I mean, I had a son, my one of my sons had a a seizure after having a head injury. Oh gosh. And I called 911 and they came to my house and I am a nurse and I was a wreck. I mean, I was just later on my husband said, my husband said, "Tina, I thought he was dying." And I was like, I didn't have the wherewithal to explain to my husband what was going on because I was I was panicking. Yeah. I'm sitting there watching him completely unresponsive and his eyes rolling back in his head and he's never had a seizure before, but it was, you know, secondary to a head injury. And so when the EMS people got there, I was just so thankful for them. I was just like, oh, thank you. They were so professional. And they just took my son and took him to the hospital and just everybody that took care of him and, you know, the the nurses, the doctors. It's so hard when it's your family member yeah, having the emergency. How can you be calm, cool, and collected when it's... No. It's someone you love. And when something like that happens, you want somebody there right now. You know, you don't, it's like every 30 seconds feels like 30 minutes. Yeah, it feels like an hour. And you want them there right now. And you want somebody professional that knows what they're doing, that will take charge, that you feel like, okay, I trust this person with my family member. And anytime I've ever had um, a long time ago, like 20 years ago, my husband, when I think about this story, um, my husband was climbing up into this loft area in our garage and he fell off the ladder. It wasn't funny (laughs) at the time, but he fell off the ladder and landed on the leg that's like protruding up from a Nordic track machine. That's like exercise machine. He landed on it and his neck went the leg that was kind of sticking up this, like, I would say like one inch square leg went through his neck, like right oh through God. his neck, right in the, 
at the it's like bottom part of your neck, just above your collarbone, like the manubrium area. Yes, right in about three or four inches into his neck, and then he pushed himself up off of it, and then had his um, hands around his throat, and then we called 911. Um, at the time you had to dial up to get internet access. So his laptop was sitting on the table, <laughs> plugged into the wall. I was so mad at it. I was like, I'm sitting around. Oh my God. The phone in to call 911. But then those people got there very quickly Took you know, what if we didn't have people that are just sitting there waiting for an emergency like that and willing to go wherever they need to go into you know, neighborhoods that are maybe a little scary. Yeah, a lot scary. Situations. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Um, going into swamps <laughs> where there are snakes and it can be hurled at you. <laughs> These people are just willing to do that. I'm so thankful for them. We should, our laws should be so strict and protecting these people because otherwise you're not going to have people to be willing to do it. And when you don't feel protected and you're expecting all this violence as a provider, an EMS provider, as a nurse, you are so on edge and you are so, yeah. you have this hairpin trigger to react violently back to patients. And that's not good for patient care either. Mm. I reacted very, very fast in an overly, mm-hmm. not, I wouldn't say overly, in a very aggressive manner to that patient because I had been in that situation hundreds of times before. But I have found myself over the years reacting to things that I thought were threats very quickly, Mm -hmm. thinking I needed to defend myself when I did not. And that is a form of PTSD that that creates Mm -hmm. PTSD. And there have been times that I have not been nice to people in delivering care because I thought that they would be a threat. So you know, like I went to a stabbing of a 16 year old kid once and it was gang related. And I remember very clearly that someone opened the side door of the ambulance to come in. And I thought that they were uh, the rival gang coming to finish this person off. And I just shoved this person out of the ambulance, closed and locked the door because I thought we were going to get attacked because that had been, what had been going on in the streets a few days before. And it ended up being the kid's dad that I had yelled at to get out. And I felt, I mean, this was so many years ago, over 10 years ago. And I still feel so guilty because his son passed away. Ugh. And we, I, you know, that was not a good interaction for him to have with EMS, but I legitimately feared for my life because yeah. providers. And nobody would blame you for that. Nobody would blame and, you for that we didn't know if we were next. So when we have this culture of Mm. violence, it creates more violence and it creates more trauma and we just, we need to stop it. And I'm not good at making laws. I'm not good at policy and, and that sort of thing, but I'm really good at talking. (laughs) So we're just going to keep talking about it (laughs) until somebody does something. Somebody do something. Until you can't ignore it. But for those nurses, it's, my heart just goes out to them for having to survive that and everyone else that has had to survive violence, had to endure violence mm-hmm. and keeps going on and still goes back to work every day Yeah, because it's incredible that they do it because they love the job and they love caring for the patients. And of course, this is not all patients. This is a small minority of patients, but it's such a big problem. It has such a big impact. When you're talking about affecting your life and limb, you know, you're, you, you could be injured, you could be permanently disfigured, you could be killed. If it's just one person out of a thousand people that you take care of, that's one person that you, you don't know which one of the thousand people is going to be that one person. That one, the, the nurse that you were talking about, who had been a nurse for 30 something years, she said that she was just talking to that patient and he was completely fine. And he just turned on her yeah. instantly just turned on her. So you just really, you don't know. People are so unpredictable, especially when it comes to these, you know, situations that they can be in. And your career ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No one signed up for that. Nope. Well, this was a difficult, (laughs) difficult (laughs) episode. Um, (laughs) People kind of listen to my podcast more for stories of medical stories, but this is the, these are the stories. These are what happens. Mm -hmm. 
this is what happens to us. So that's a look into what it's like to be an EMS because it, it happens every day. That happens. Unfortunately, the violence happens more frequently than the the crazy cardiac arrest saves and the the birth and babies on the side of the highway. This this happens regularly. Mm. So that's a sad but true look into the the world. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming on. It's been so great to collaborate with you. I know. I've loved it. This has been great. Tell everyone where they can check out your podcast and connect with you if they want to hear more. Yeah, you can just go on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, any of the places where you listen to podcasts and just search good nurse, bad nurse. It'll come up. And then um, Facebook is good nurse, bad nurse. And our Instagram is good nurse, bad nurse. And then the Twitter is GNBN podcast. And of course, our social media, you can always email us at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. If you are a healthcare provider and you have stories and you want to be interviewed on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. I would love to get more ideas about what we should be talking about, what you guys want to hear every week. And if you have any stories of your own about healthcare violence and you want to talk about it, we have the new Facebook group. So I would love to have you comment on the post. I'm going to be posting a discussion forum this week's episode and you can always reach out to us on the facebook page antidotes podcast instagram is antidotes podcast and twitter is antidotes pod and my twitter is christine the np so thank you guys again for listening i hope you enjoyed it and i will see you next week